0: Wait, that's a thing? Never heard of it. Oh, you have no idea. This is Haven Space, a safe place for fantasies. Brought to you by sex coach and researcher, Sarah Perry. Hi folks, this is Sarah Perry and welcome back to season two of Haven Space. Today, to kick off this new season, we are going to be discussing sex dolls and egalmatophilia, which is um, the objectophilia of people like objects. But really, we're going to be focusing on sex dolls themselves. By the end of this podcast, you should know what this fetish entails, a little bit of history about the fetish, um, how to find it, how to care for this, um, the tools that you will need in this fetish, how to go about making this type of play happen for yourself uh, with all of the consent, respect, and pleasure that our bodies are worthy of. So let's get started. Dr. McCard Smith wrote a book on the erotic doll. And a lot of what he has studied is kind of the origin of this idea of sex dolls. So early ideas from sexologists link to statuophilia, which is another kind of amalgamophilia. It is um, the sexual attraction to statues. And there's a lot of literature written about people who fell in love with statues like Venus and other replicas of Venus and all kinds of different statues and people that were caught having sex with these statues. But I would like to say that the idea of being attracted to a person-like figure is very different than being attracted to another object. For example, other objectum sexuals would be attracted to items like Bridges, and there was a really famous case that was a person falling in love with the Eiffel Tower and, in fact, having a wedding and marrying the Eiffel Tower. Now, fetishes that have to do with human bodies are very different than fetishes that have to do with objects that don't relate to human bodies at all. And remember that a lot of times these fetishes, these sexual attractions, don't actually depend on penetration. They just could be the idea of becoming or turning into this object or a doll for example or it could actually just be the feeling that there's a romantic connection there not necessarily sexual when we think of fetishes we think of sexual connections but remember and remembering that relationships are not important only inside of their sexual entities so By the 17th century, we have data that says that sailors used to fashion uh, masturbators made out of cloth and other materials. Um, In France, they came to be referred to as the dame de Voyage. And in Spain, they even said Dama de Viaje. So it's the exact same thing. Um, but they became so common for sailors that present time sex dolls in Japan are referred to as Dutch wives because the Dutch sailors would bring them um, some type of fabric made into the shape of a woman that they could fuck and masturbate with. So literally in Japanese, the term for sex dolls is Dutch wives. So in 1916, an artist named Kakoshka Asked a seamstress who was his ex girlfriend's actual seamstress to make her body out of fabric and apparently gave her specific instructions about exactly how he wanted the stall to be and feel. And the rest of the story is muddled because some people say he had. Um, a great reaction to it and carried it around and absolutely loved it. And other people say that he actually ended up hating it, but the end is that he did end up burning it in some giant party. So whether or not we think he was sexually attracted to the doll, it is the first known case of a person making a doll that was human-sized and shaped. This whole time, though, the representation of the female figure, a lot of times beheaded is seen in artists like Man Ray and Dali who painted mannequins and torsos all the time in their art. And although some people say that they were sexualizing and eroticizing the feminine body, I think it's important to note that I think there could have been a bigger critique in their art than the feminine body is something we want to fuck or objectify. I think the critique is that You can dehumanize somebody, you can be void of life and still be emblematic of life. And our interpretations of their art being kind of broken down to just sexual, I think is honestly a disservice to any artist. Any person that believes in art and follows it would really understand that art is not what you see, it's what it evokes, so um, so I think that maybe that's a little bit simple when we're talking about artists like Man Ray and Zali. Uh, but then there was a super common misconception that sex dolls were actually invented by Hitler and that they were mass produced and were taken along with their military as they um, took over territories so that they could prevent their... Um, Aryan race from muddling with whatever race they were trying to take over. But this is known to be untrue. Actually, um, technically, based on the timeline we have of sex dolls, there weren't even life-size sex dolls at the time of World War II. The Build Lily doll uh, made in the 50s was made after a sexy cartoon named Lily, which was a lot like the character of Jessica Rabbit in terms of like this hyper-sexualized cartoon character, except she was in a comic strip. And it was marketed to adult men, but it was an 11-inch uh, plastic doll that ended up becoming actually the inspiration for the Barbie doll. So take that as you will if you give it to your children. Just know it was designed after that, this hypersexualized figurine. Now, sex dolls themselves started being advertised in magazines in 1968, 1968 being the key year when the U.S. allowed um, sexual objects to be sold via mail and via catalog. So they still couldn't be sold in stores, uh, but you could get them through the mail. And by the 80s, all of these stores that were now legally allowed to sell this kind of crap were selling a ton of them but this is where we see that big push for the blow up doll that is really just a gag gift um extremely uncomfortable to actually put anything inside of especially a penis and nonetheless not capable of withstanding human weight so really just for fun um by the 90s an artist named Matt McMullen started actually shaping dolls um, from silicone and he was creating these figures and he started getting questions about whether he could make them anatomically correct, meaning can they have genitals, which he hadn't been doing until then. And the demand was so high that he started creating these dolls and now owns Real Doll, which is arguably the most well-known and biggest uh, sex doll company. And their dolls range anywhere from about $2,000 to about $10,000 or a little more. And nowadays with technology, you can be buying dolls that are 20, 30 grand because they are robots and they can learn things about you. But we'll touch a little bit more on robot dolls later. There's also um, a myth of, or maybe not a myth, but I guess we'll say an urban legend of... um, people raping CPR dolls, specifically um, childlike CPR dolls, because in this country, at least, we do not have access to um, child-sized sex dolls. They um, passed a law in 2017 that made it illegal to ever manufacture um, child-sized sex dolls. But as it was discussed in the ASECT conference, American Association for Sex Educators and Therapists Conference. Um, We don't know that having eliminated the chance of having child-sized sex dolls is actually a good thing. We are completely taking away a lot of the ease of access in terms of cost and in terms of mobility, just because these dolls tend to be very heavy for people with disabilities and for people with lower incomes that could actually be using these dolls in really therapeutic ways. We are also assuming that we cannot help treat or provide therapy for people who fetishize smaller bodies by removing them from their grasp. But we don't know. We've never done studies that show if this could be a viable therapy for people, if this could be a viable outlet for people who see these kinds of attractions, and I think that's really a disservice, and we need to be doing better in in eliminating kind of the shock factor that comes with passing sweeping legislations that really prevent access and prevent research that could benefit all of our society so let's talk a little bit about um, the way we look at doll owners and doll users from a psychological perspective. We've talked before about how in psychology we tend to pathologize people. That means uh, see what they're doing as something that is medical, seeing it as a disease. And um, I think a lot of the studies in previous years around people who own sex dolls were Pretty sex negative in general and definitely scrutinizing, pathologizing of human sex behaviors that are deemed outside of the norm, outside of that charmed circle that we have discussed, Gail Rubin. What we do know about the research that is out there is that the people that tend to purchase and engage with sex dolls tend in a very, very, very large majority to be straight, cisgender, middle-aged men. And in further studies, actually a study done by Sarah Hathaway Valverde actually shows that they are also white men. And what they do show is that regardless of their kind of positionality in life, they are not worse or better on the satisfaction with life scale that she is using to actually do these studies. And this is only a study of 61 men and these are people that volunteered and that she found in a um, sex doll lover group online. So these are people that m- volunteered and already like, we've talked about studies being skewed simply because in the very basis of getting someone that su- to sign up for a study, you can't be coercive. You have to just allow people to sign up themselves according to like rules of ethics. And just the fact that those people volunteered already creates a different category of people. People who are more likely to be open sexually, to have less shameful behaviors, to have less kind of generational and situational trauma surrounding their sexual behaviors. So already, we're in a different category subset of these doll lovers. But in the study, that is what she showed, that they were not worse psychologically. They didn't feel worse about um, where they were in life Than people who didn't engage in dolls and have relationships with dolls, but they also didn't feel better. And this is just a good way to say it seems that we are just average people like everyone else. They also didn't show any different rates of mental illness, and it kind of puts, um, it kind of bursts that bubble that we think of as like people are deviants or cannot relate to other people and therefore they're having to turn to these dolls or they have social anxiety. Really, the studies show that not so much. They're just average everyday people that love to play with dolls. It's also important to note that the reason women don't tend to engage with dolls of this type could simply be the fact that these dolls tend to be big and heavy and... While statistically worldwide, women are not larger than men on average, in this country, America specifically, that is the case. Women tend to be smaller. Therefore, a doll that weighs 75 to 100 pounds simply isn't usable for a smaller body. Alternatively, people that have been born with vulvas and have that type of structure that is very kind of clitoral tissue Orgasmic may not want um, this very expensive sex toy that they likely can't actually get an orgasm from. Most of the sex dolls that I was looking at don't have vibrator dicks. While a lot of them do have um, prosthetic penises and they even have like strap-on style penises you can put on, most of the time they don't have any kind of vibration or movement on them that would Help a person with a vulva achieve an orgasm. Now, recognize what I'm saying that most of the sex dolls that are sold are sex dolls of feminine bodies, feminine features. Some of them come in trans bodies, but most of the trans bodies are penis having, boob having, feminine faces. And what does that really tell us except the fact that we want to objectify and sexualize? Um, trans people who have not who have not decided to have surgery, or even the idea that what makes a person sexually attractive to the customer in this case cis white men is the feminine face is the feminine chest, but there is still some curiosity for penises that is so shameful, so unacceptable that you have to only engage in it if the person is. Woman presenting. Now, the strap on accessory is actually much more widely sold than the penis accessory. So, the one that looks more natural is not the one that's being used, it is the one that looks like an attachment. Imagine what this tells us about how we find interaction with phalluses to be acceptable when we are living in cis straight bodies as opposed to queer communities where anybody, any body, any shape can be a part of your sexual dynamic without you feeling shame surrounding it. Something that did come up during the ASECT conference was the idea that these trans bodies being sold are being objectified and sexualized solely for their bodies. And similar to female bodies, they're completely commoditized to be used in vast majority by cis straight white men. So I wanna pause here to acknowledge that this is a thing that occurs, that the bodies that are being objectified are not the bodies of white cis men, but the bodies of trans people, the bodies of queer people, the bodies of black people, the bodies of women, because historically, those are the bodies that were monetized. Those are the bodies that were sold, distributed, purchased. So that historical trauma, that epigenetic trauma of the purchase and the manufacture of these bodies to sell and trade continues to be the same bodies over and over. There are very, very low amounts of sales for bodies that look like straight white men. Instead, the sales for black um, bodies, the sales for women, the sales for trans bodies, um, bodies that are in the middle of what we see as the range of feminine to masculine, if you want to put it as a range, Um, these bodies seem to be sold at very high rates. So we need to stop. We need to acknowledge it. We need to say this is problematic and this is part of our culture and we need to acknowledge that this is part of how it is. Alternatively, we should also say potentially that being sexualized and fetishized is the beginning of some form of acceptance. Once we are able to say that we're attracted to something, that something is desirable, then maybe we can change the dialogue about the way we relate to that aspect instead of shaming people with trans bodies. Once we've actually determined that their bodies are desirable, we can allow people in trans bodies to feel comfortable in whatever way their bodies are showing up at that particular time, especially if it is someone that is transitioning. Yes, I understand what I'm saying is problematic, but I do like to try to look on the bright side and hope that society does slowly progress over time. I would like to also add that perhaps the reason that men who are straight and white and old tend to love sex dolls could really simply just be the fact that our society does not allow boys to play with dolls. And when they were growing up, they tended to see young girls playing with dolls. And that idea of what girls were doing has left a lingering attraction for them about their behaviors. The same way That some people will fetishize the idea of a group of friends having sex with them or sibling groups having sex with them because that's what they grew up seeing as kids, that these groups were bonded together and they outgrouped you and that wanting to be involved seemed to kind of trigger a sexual necessity. Remember that a lot of the ways that we trigger our fetishes and our desires are actually Bond making behaviors. So it makes perfect sense that someone, a society, a community who has been outgrouped from a specific behavior would then turn that into a sexual experience to ingroup themselves with the same group that they were never able to gain acceptance from. It seems to me that playing with dolls could have become sexual anywhere along the way, but simply has become literally playing with dolls for boys. When we're talking about emotional connections, all of these people that consider themselves idolaters um, are considered to be in standing relationships with these dolls. They believe them and they feel them to have an identity, which has obviously been given to them, but it is not pathological and it is not something that makes them more likely as this Hathaway Valverde's research showed us, something that makes them more likely to be violent, aggressive, or um, to be inconsiderate of consent rules and boundaries. In fact, it could potentially make them the complete opposite, make them create these personalities for people that then they go on to respect and um, embellish in ways that actually can add to their life. Now, there is a small caveat that perhaps there's a little element of narcissistic tendencies where we have a creator Complex and we feel positive and sexual and aroused by the fact that we created this identity. We sometimes even create the doll, uh, choosing different attributes, dressing them up, um, choosing what it is they're saying or moving. So similar to the idea of doll play in children, that creator complex comes in and then it gains attraction because there's so much self-confidence that comes back with that narcissism. One huge quote in the doll community is that synthetic love lasts forever, the idea that these dolls will never leave you, they won't abandon your relationship, they won't walk away, they won't stray, they won't be unfaithful, because you are imagining this entire thing. So I think it's important to note that um, the very root of that statement is the fear of loss and how... As a society, we could do so much better if we taught our children that love looks like... Freedom, And it doesn't look like sacrifice, which is what we've all been taught to think. And I think this idea of a sex doll that can't leave you, that is just tied to you, is committed to you, will never leave, will never do anything, is really a symptom of a bigger issue that we're having with defining sacrifice as love, being able to give up everything you ever wanted, your dreams, all of your friends, potential future partners, because you love somebody. That being the real definition of love is the biggest, biggest issue that I see with connecting to something that you literally own. In the future, I would like to have a new podcast where we talk about robot dolls, because there's a whole other world of that, and robot doll brothels, sex doll brothels, kinks doll chains, potential positive and negative sides, and objections from the greater community. So where can you find it? Um, if you hashtag idolaters, like the letter I, doll dollators on Instagram, uh, you can find all kinds of posts. You can actually look up that term online. Also, it'll bring you to a bunch of support groups. Apparently, the community is incredibly open, and I'm definitely going to try to get at least a couple of these companies to come chat with us in a future podcast. Um, you can look up Synthetic with... Um, I-C-K at the end. You can look up Fembot Science, which is actually even a um, OnlyFans page for dolls. Um, there are doll IG accounts like Janie Maffoon. Um, Dave Cat is a very famous idolater who's been on a bunch of TV shows, um, and he has a blog called Shouting to Hear Echoes, where he advocates for synthetic human rights, which is bananas, but definitely engages my curiosity, and I would love to hear more about what they think. You can also look for your own dolls on websites like um, Real Dolls, websites like Silicone Wives or like Silicone Lovers. to uh, Haven Resale Shop has them at much more affordable prices and can do repairs. And if a doll breaks, they actually take it. If they can't repair it, they'll just repair that area so it looks nice. And even though the mobility may be off or something may be off, then they sell it at a discount. It can make them much more accessible. Um, so how to be safe, remember that just because this is silicone doesn't mean that it doesn't absorb stuff, you cannot use silicone lubes with these high quality dolls, you have to use water based lubes, some of them have removable vaginas so that you can actually clean them out well, but if not, the best idea would be to just use a condom so that you don't have bacteria building inside in ways that you can't use it. You can also use douches to clean it out, but you have to make sure you dry it very, very well because silicone has a tendency to kind of decay over time if left wet. So you would have to dry it, maybe put some alcohol in there so that it evaporates super, super clean. Maybe even put some cornstarch and then clean it out after. So the care of these dolls is a huge part of um, how much you're gonna get to enjoy it and for how long. So to recap, We talked about sex dolls, the fetishes where it comes from, people who write about them. We talked about statuophilia and the idea that people could fall in love with statues. We talked about the sailors in the 17th centuries. We talked about Man Ray and Dali painting mannequins. We talked about the Build Lily doll and how it was used to eventually make the Barbie doll. We talked about our artist Matt McMullen in the 90s using silicone mannequins and creating Real Doll, the company. And we talked about what kind of prices you can imagine and the psychology of what this really means for people who love dolls. Thank you for listening. And I can't wait to enjoy an amazing season with you. This has been another podcast of Haven Space. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Haven Space by Sarah and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Haven Space by Sarah. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a patron and helping fund more talks like this in the future.